Hi, this is Les McEwen, and you're listening to the Leader Lab podcast. So who are you and what do you do? Well, my name is Les McEwen, and uh, I work in the area of business growth. I help organizations that have stalled out get to the next stage in their organizational development. And that's a pretty fun thing to do. I get to work with typically folks who are genuinely with skin in the game. I work a lot with founder owners. I work with people in the C-suite who really care about what's happening in their business. Uh, and I get to see the insides of, a, of an awful lot of different types of business. So it's really cool. And you are the, uh, the, the author of a book. Well, I better said you're the author of a concept and an idea. And a book is just one of the ways that you're spreading that idea. And that's a predictable success. But before we get into that, I, I know you're a serial entrepreneur and a serial consultant of businesses. How did you come to develop the idea of predict- predictable success? Well, uh, interestingly, David, it goes back to my childhood, literally. I, I, I was a sad little child with a ridiculously um, precocious interest in business, although in those days, and I'm talking about my early teenage years when I was you know, 12, 13, 14, um, it was more just a question of being intrigued by why certain toys became very popular at Christmas, why... I remember being fascinated about why one store right next to where we lived seemed to shut down and reopen every three to four months, while another one just literally across the street was in its third and maybe even fourth generation had been going on forever. And uh, when my dad would take me into his offices, I, I just loved the whole environment, you know, things like typewriters, which, you know, will give you a brief idea as to how old I am. Um, it, it all just fascinated me. And, I, and so as I began to think about what I wanted to do with myself. Uh, I originally thought I might be a journalist, enjoyed writing, uh, but this fascination with business really took over, and I, a very good mentor of mine, one of my first mentors, advised me to go get an accounting qualification. So I became a, uh, a CPA, or the British equivalent, what they call back there, a chartered accountant. And it all really came from there. I, I, I was not that interested in the legacy work of preparing accounts and doing tax returns. I was fascinated by what these accounts that I prepared actually said about a business. And I was very, um, I, I, I was very pleased and privileged to have a lot of clients in the early days. I started my own practice when I was uh, 24 years of age, and I was privileged to have clients who would let me come and try to help work out what was going on in their business using the accounts as a basis. And from that, I, I got a reputation as a good advisor. I started to help people launch businesses. They would ask me to participate. And before I was 35, I'd ended up launching or helping to launch 42 businesses. And I started to see a pattern emerge of, of what made for a good startup. And I pretty much thought I had it nailed, to be honest with you. And the UK government came along and asked me to uh, help put together an incubation business with another guy, actually an old friend of mine, another serial entrepreneur, uh, to help launch uh, new businesses in the UK. And I spent, ended up spending eight years with uh, my partner doing that. 
And a really fascinating thing happens, a lengthy answer to your question, but I'll, I'll get to the point in a moment. Um, we, we were both really good at startup, and uh, we helped launch literally hundreds of businesses. We ended up with offices all around the world, over 100 employees. Um, and we were, we were launching these businesses off the end of the runway, you know, week in, week out. And a couple of years in, um, not surprisingly in retrospect, but at the time it was a big surprise, a few of them started to fail. And that was a shock to us both. It shouldn't have been, but it was. And um, it was also a financial shock because we were getting paid uh, to some degree related to the success of these businesses. So I took it upon myself to, to really concentrate and focus on trying to find out what made second stage businesses, businesses got past the startup level, uh, succeed in my, when others failed. And out of that, out of all of the work that I did, it became clear to me that the key was some sort of uh, organizational structural shift. I mean, we had really good people in these startups, so that wasn't the issue. Most of them were really well-funded, so that wasn't the issue. So I was left with one thing, which was there was something about the environment, the structure within which these people and their money were operating. And once I saw that, uh, I knew intuitively there was going to be more than one of these shifts. I spent the next uh, nine, ten years just looking at nothing else other than the organizational shifts that successful businesses undergo. And it ended up with this thing that I call predictable success. I didn't invent, it's just something that I, over all of the, the businesses that I looked at, it became clear to me there was a pattern and I gave it a name. And that's what predictable success is. It's the seven stages every organization goes through leading up to success and away from it. What I love about well, I love two things about the uh, the book and the concept. One is the uh, the graphic that you use to describe it, because now having read the book, I can kind of pick it up and look at the back and sort of work my way through it and remember all of the all the things. So it's a nice graphic for a summary. But the other thing I love, and this is true of, of organizational life and the life cycle in general, um, and there's a lot of different models and a lot of different uh, names for different stages of organizational life. But a lot of them put the sort of striving thing maybe closer to the end as in, you know, there's this and then there's maybe one step afterwards. In your model, uh, predictable success is in the middle, which is I think is phenomenal because it's it's true of organizations. We don't typically see them, you know, with the exception of some of the uh, banks and all of that in the credit crisis, we don't tend to see them uh, die and, and dry up immediately. We tend to see it as a slow decline. And, and one that you talk about in the book is, is reversible. But for our people that are thinking, okay, what is he talking about with a picture and what is he talking about with a graphic, uh, hopefully they'll uh, they'll go to your site while they're listening to this podcast. But if they don't, um, talk to me about those different cycles that are in the predictable success model. Well, um, if our listeners want to, uh, in the front of a computer, they can just go to predictablesuccess.com forward slash map, M-A-P, predictablesuccess.com forward slash map. And there's nothing on that page except the graphic that's in the book. And you're right, it's very intuitive. And um, funny enough, I, I spent um, quite a number of years before I released the book doing nothing other than getting the vocabulary that's used in that map, the names for each of the stages, uh, honed to what I think is a really good intuitive um, a sense of exactly what each of the stages are about. So um, I, I've, and I've heard a lot from folks uh, get, telling me a version of what you just said, that once you see it, it's pretty obvious what's going on. And I find that to be the case with most things that are that are true. You know, this is not a made-up methodology. It's just, like I said, it's what I found. So uh, what I discovered real briefly is that there are uh, three growth stages that every organization goes through leading to the stage that I call predictable success. 
And although an organization can, in theory, stay there, the reality is that many of them pitch forward uh, eventually into some decline stages and may, if they don't do the right things, ultimately expire. And um, real, real briefly to go through the stages, uh, they work as follows. Uh, every organization, and I should say, although I'm going to talk here in context of business organizations, this model applies for any group of people, two or more, who are trying to achieve common goals. So, you know, I've had it applied in church environments, in soccer leagues, in relationships. Uh, I did a call a couple of weeks ago with a, a young lady who's applying the model to her counseling in marriages. So it applies to any group of people trying to achieve a common goals. But I'll talk uh, in terms of business. And we start with the early struggle phase. And essentially, that's a race uh, against time to find a profitable, sustainable market before the external funding runs out. And you know anybody who started a business knows what the early struggle phase is like. It's really, really tough. There's a high mortality rate. Over 80% of all new ventures fail in the first three years. Really, really tough time. And there's only one goal in early struggle, and that's to get out of it, get out to the next stage. A lot of businesses die because the founders don't recognize that they have to get out of early struggle, and the faster they get out, the better. I talk in the book a little bit about early struggle obsessives, who are people who really like the drama of the early struggle phase, and, and that can be really <laughs> detrimental to survival. So if you get through the early struggle phase, which is, in, in, uh, in my estimation, the, the most difficult uh, stage for any business, it naturally hits at the second stage, which I've given the highly technical name of fun. I call it fun because it is fun. It's early stage growth. It's when the myths and legends of the business are developed. Uh, you know, we almost can't help but sell to people. We're so passionate and enthusiastic. It feels so good to be out of that dreadful grip of early struggle. We've got a little bit of cash. We're starting from very low market share, so we can post double digit growth. And, you know, that can go on for quite a number of years. The founder owner. Uh, it looks and feels really successful. Their vision has been vindicated. Uh, all their friends and family who told them they were idiots during early struggle, you know, he or she's proved them wrong, him right. It's a great time to own the business. And for most uh, business owners, the fun stage is what they think is predictable success. It, it, this is what it feels like business should be like. This feels like normality because it's great fun and typically highly profitable because our cost base is low. But fun brings with it in itself the seeds of the next stage of uh, every organization's development. And that's a rocky stage that I call whitewater. And essentially what happens to a business in fun is it grows. And what happens to a business in, that grows is it becomes more complex. So there are more layers of, of management. There, there are uh, more customers. We begin to have to service legacy customers. Not everything we do is brand new. We have to do uh, things that you know perhaps we weren't used to whenever we were just sell, sell, selling. We're going out and fixing or repairing or maintaining. Um, we've got you know more moving parts in the business, and one day we wake up and. You know, we've delivered the wrong thing to the customer, we've ordered the wrong raw material, or we completely forgot about something that was supposed to happen. And um, initially it just feels like, oh, well, you know, Jimmy wasn't in the warehouse that day or Jimmy wasn't in charge of the purchasing. It's just a, it's just a temporary glitch. But eventually it becomes clear we actually have a systemic problem here. We're dropping the ball consistently and we're firefighting all the time. And that's very expensive and profitability gets shot and the uh, when profitability gets shot, everybody gets nervous, and we're in this whitewater thing, and it feel, that's just what it feels like, the boat's rocking from side to side. 
Uh, that's where I typically first get involved with folks. That's when I get a call. Uh, often it's a founder owner still uh, owning the business. Sometimes it's professional management. Whichever way it is, at this point, uh, it's terrifying uh, because, again, the, the management isn't sitting looking at my map uh, and saying, oh, yeah, we've hit whitewater. They thought they had the perfect business a while back, and they now think that perfect business is dying. So they think it's at the end of the life cycle. And one of the great things I get to do is to show them the, the, the graph. It's at uh, predictablesuccess.com forward slash map and say, look, you're at this stage. It's called white water. And almost as soon as I say it to most folks and show them the graph, they get it intuitively. And the, the key here is to bring systems and processes uh, to bear to get the ship righted just the essential systems and processes that are necessary. And if we get that right, the business will break through. It will get to predictable success. That's the stage where the organization can set and relatively easily achieve its goals. And predictable success is really like fun, except we now know how and why we're successful. We've bottled it. We've got the process. It's scalable and it's repeatable, and we can grow the business to any size we want. And as I say, theoretically, uh, and practically many organizations can stay in predictable success for a very long time. General Electric, GE were there for 17 years on a stretch. But in reality, what tends to happen is because we did a good thing, we brought some systems and processes to bear, and that got us out of that white water stage. What we all do when we do a good thing and it has a good result is we do more of it. And so we begin to put in even more systems and more processes, and the organization becomes bureaucratized. And it slides forward into the first decline stage, which I call treadmill, because that's just what it's like. It feels like you're on a treadmill. You're pounding out the, the hours, but not going anywhere. It's all about checklists. It's all about form over function. You know, We're worried about what color the Pantone shade is for our logo and our brochure, rather than whether the brochure is really world-class. FaceTime is important. And at that stage, often the founder owner is either gone or is going to go because they can't stand this system IT system of their, of their baby. And the business is in treadmill. The good news in treadmill is that the organization is self-diagnosing. Uh, there's still people there who know what's going on, who see it and say, hold on a second, uh, we need to ease up on all these systems and processes. Maybe we, let's not do another Kaizen or introduce lean manufacturing right now. Let's just ease up and get back to being flexible again, and you can get back to predictable success. If you don't do that, then the business slides forward to the penultimate stage, which I call the big rut. And in the big rut, we're a full-blown bureaucracy, and we like it that way. We've lost the power to self-diagnose. We don't want to change it. Customers are a pain in the neck. Uh, We just want to move the the seats around on the Titanic. And we begin a long, slow cruise to the final rocky end, which I call death rattle. And that might take a very long time if you've built up a monopoly position and you've got a huge cash balance. Uh, You can be in the big rut for a long time. An educational establishment I work with has been in the big rut for almost 150 years. Uh, But eventually, you'll hit death rattle, the final stage. And that's it. Those are the seven stages of predictable success, three up to the peak and three down to the climb. You know, it's funny that you say that. I I work with one foot in academia and one foot in the practitioner realm. Uh, and when you describe the big rut, that's the first thing I think of is different universities that I've been exposed to and uh, or have worked in and with. And it's kind of funny. You're, you're absolutely right. It's amazing how long they can stretch out that big rut, but you know you can see it on the horizon, especially if you think about the challenge from for-profit universities and online education, et cetera. I, I don't know how much longer they're going to stay in a big rut, but it's definitely identifiable. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. And, you know, tenure is one of the greatest uh, amplifiers of the big rut. Uh, you know, you can't shift stuff around. You can't move things. And we all saw in Harvard there a couple of years ago when Larry Summers uh, came in, essentially what he tried to do was to take that organization out of the big rut. And the um, the organ was rejected. You know, there, there's all this hoo-ha about what he said. And, you know, there may or may not have been merit in that argument. But in, in essence, actually what was happening was the the uh, body was rejecting the organ that did not want to move out of the big rut. Mm-hmm. No, I, I was just, uh, probably one of the reasons it's so uh, top on my mind is I was just rereading uh, Jim Collins' monograph, Good to Great in the Social Sectors, and he talks in there about uh, a a a businessman, a former CEO becoming dean of a of a business school and thinking that he can make all sorts of changes. And it's you know, it's not true because he's got the tenured faculty and people who are rooted in and they just if they don't want to budge, the organization stays exactly where it is. It's a good analogy that you know, the body rejects the organ. That's exactly what happens. And you know, I have people call me from time to time who say I'm 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 thinking of or I already have uh, bought or taking over an organization that's in the big rut and you know I need your help because I want to change it and I, I only have one question and that is can you get rid of all that is 100% of the top management if the answer is yes let's go see what we can do if the answer is even a bit no then you're on your own because the entropy that's in there will suck you dry and you won't get it out so the big rut, that's the, and that's the essential difference between the big rut and treadmill. Treadmill is always fixable, always fixable. No problem about going in there. It's a mechanical process. You can get it back to uh, predictable success. Once it's made that slide into the big rut, you have problems. And, you know, at the time that we're recording this, David, uh, you know, I would point at Microsoft and I'd say there's an awful lot there that makes me think there's an organization that has slid into the early stages of the big rut and has, you know, it's not any longer just in treadmill where it has bureaucrat, bureaucratic issues that can be fixed. It's beginning to believe its own publicity and doesn't want to hear uh, anything really from the outside. And if the, if the board don't make a move in the next six to 12 months, then I would say they're firmly in the big run. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Um, let's talk about some of the fixes. Again, what, one of the things I love about this model is that bridgeable set success is both the pinnacle and it's also in the middle uh, and on both sides, you have whitewater and treadmill. And they're both, you say, very fixable, very easy to get into predictable success. But it seems like most organizations waver between. They hit predictable success for a little while, then fall into the treadmill, maybe come back and uh, possibly even fall back into whitewater. Uh, let's start with whitewater. How do you take an organization from whitewater to predictable success? Well, first of all, I, what I would I'd just like to clarify the, the uh, easy thing. When I say it's easy, it's easy to know what to do. It's oh, that's a good point. Incredibly, incredibly difficult to actually get it to happen because it requires uh, a mind shift change on behalf of senior management in both cases. And essentially what's happening <clears throat> most often in Whitewater is that we have a team who uh, most recently were uh, running the business in fun. And fun is fun, and you really almost can do no wrong. You, know, you open new offices, start new product lines. No matter what you do, you seem to make money out of it. It's a, it's a great time, uh, particularly for founder owners, but uh, even for professional managers. It's a wonderful stage to run a business, and it's very rewarding. And, you know, you, you get a lot of accolades, and you get a lot of praise, and uh, you're really doing it on uh, mostly a visceral management style. It tends to be... Not that much by way of an org chart, and what there is isn't really adhered to that much. There's a lot of ambiguity, duplicity, and roles. 
you know, we don't have big complicated meetings. Our board meeting is really a ride up in the elevator in the morning. We have a chat. We decide what to do, turn on a dime, all that stuff. So uh, here we have that management style hitting the need to um, master complexity. And mastering complexity is very hard to do based on your gut. You really need to put some uh, railroad tracks in place. You've got to have systems and processes that ensure that we do uh, bring the same degree of consistent quality day in, day out to every part of our operation. We can't any longer just turn to what the next issue is and bring our sheer brilliance to bear. We've got to learn to um, depend on some systems and processes. And that mindset is very, very hard for the senior management team. And in my second book next year, I'm devoting it entirely to what's going on in the in the minds of the people that are trying to make these shifts and how their management styles get get challenged. Um, you know, they want to continue to hire. Here's an simple example. They want to continue to hire the way they've always done, which is they put their feet up on the desk, ask the inter- pure interviewee a few, you know, off-the-wall questions like what zoo animal are you or what body of water are you or whatever. You know, 35 seconds into it, decide, oh, this, this, this young man, this young lady reminds me of me. You know, it's all done on attitude. It's all done on values. And it's all assuming that they're going to be able to mentor and coach them to the skills level that are required because that's the way you were able to hire and grow the business when it was very young. Now we've got to actually get things like behaviorally based questions. We've got to do things like get panel interviews being done. We've got to get the line managers involved so that we've got some systems and processes that bring consistency to our hiring. Um, So that sort of mechanical process, you know, what happens a lot is that the uh, visionary founder owner intellectually recognizes that this is necessary to get through white water. Uh, bring somebody in like a general manager or a CFO, uh, a VP, to help bring those systems and processes to bear. But you know what? The minute it looks like this is working and we're stabilizing, they just want to get back to fun. And so they begin to torpedo the systems and processes. They begin to make workarounds. The big dogs who have built sweat equity in the early stages of fun, uh, maybe not in the senior management team, but certainly of the ear of the founder owner or the senior managers, they start getting really irritated with having to attend meetings and fill in memos and you know adhere to these systems and processes. So they start saying, hey, boss, you know, happy to come to this ops meeting on Thursday, fully supportive of it, really think it's a great idea, definitely we need it. But, you know, do you want me to do that or do you want me to go fix this problem with our biggest client? And so they start torpedoing the systems and processes. And before you know it, once more, the body has rejected the organ. You know, we think we've cracked it. We've we've overcome these, seem to have overcome these whitewater issues. We've got some consistency. And, hey, let's all go back to fun. And so the processes and systems become abrogated. They they die on the weather on the vine. We may even have that CFO or general manager leave out of sheer frustration. And we're back to fun. And then what happens? We start to grow again. What happens? We have whitewater again. And then the cycle perpetuates. And I've seen some organizations go through that cycle of whitewater, bring systems and processes in, think we've got it licked, um, relax the systems and processes to go back to fun. I've seen them go through it three, four, five times before the recognition dawns. And this is one of the reasons that I wrote the book. I wanted to try to help folks see that we have got to commit to reasonable systems and processes forever. This is not about going back to fun. It's about breaking through to a whole new stage. It's about becoming. It's almost a rebirth happens of the organ. Excuse me.
excuse me, of the organization is by becoming a new, different adult organization. And the essential difference is at that point now we can scale indefinitely. We, we don't need to worry about banging up against white water over and over again. We can scale indefinitely. And that's what I try to show folks um, in management going through white water. That's the key differential. Sign up for this. Sign up for systems and processes and commit to it uh, in perpetuity, not just to fix the problem. And then hitting, uh, I, th- I think you're absolutely right, calling it, uh, it's not necessarily easy to hit that target because it's, uh, it's ever-fluctuating, but maybe simple. I- implementation is always the difficult part. Strategy is always uh, the simpler part, as it were. And so we have this organization that hit predictable success uh, through implementing systems and processes, and then it, it becomes very risky because you run the risk of sliding into treadmill. When you slide into treadmill, how do you take your organization back to predictable success? Well, the, the key there is that typically what's happened is we've brought in this SVP or a CFO or a general manager or a new CEO sometimes, and uh, we've implemented some systems and processes. We've begun to understand the necessity of sticking with it, <clears throat> and it's done a good job for us. We've got to predictable success. We've got two, three, four years of um, revenue growth, good profit. We've restored our profitability. Uh, we're looking good in a competitive market. You know, we, we, we're better uh, run, better organized than our competitors. Editors, so that gives us, gets us a reputation. Our brand becomes um, synonymous with doing things well, not just selling well, but delivering well and maintaining well. And you know that all makes sense. So we begin to extend the the, the use of systems and processes. So you know we start to put kaizens together, sign up for Six Sigma or some sort of lean, or you know, we, or, we, or we just you know give our HR department untrammeled access to. Uh, putting systems and processes everywhere or anywhere they want to go. And before you know it, we're running this business through a whole series of checklists. And, um, you know, adherence to the individual steps in the checklist becomes more important than the thing the checklist was there to achieve. So, you know, have you ticked all the boxes is the key issue, not did ticking those boxes mean that our customer had a fantastic experience? And we begin to adhere more to the form of what we're doing than the function of it. And it's all about, becomes all about compliance. Uh, and at that point, we need to do the opposite. We need to start taking uh, steps to remove that over-dependence in systems and processes. So mechanically, uh, we're beginning to look at things like, and it's what I devoted the whole of book, part two of the book to, or the, what are the mechanical issues. And I find that 80% of the changes that need to happen applies actually both to treadmill uh, and to whitewater. 80% of the changes that need to happen revolve around uh, six uh, core areas that I just simply saw over and over and over again made a substantial difference. And the the key ones in treadmill are, again, let's go back, look at the hiring process. Typically by then we're hiring people who we're, and we're hiring them primarily for their ability to adhere to process. That's what we're looking for is, you know, can you work process? And that becomes an amplifier of treadmill. Treadmill. So we begin. We need to start looking at what the must-haves uh, are for our, all of our hiring, and say, look, we need to hire people with creativity, the ability to take um, controlled risk, people who use their initiative, uh, people who have a challenge function. And so we restructure what we're looking for in hiring, not to throw out adherence, adherence to uh, process, but to make it an and, not an or. Um, look at things like deployment. Uh, at this point, typically, we're putting people in a vertical channel, and they make their way up that channel 
by you know dead men's shoes or by expansion opening up something above them uh, and what needs to happen is we have to start moving people around from silo to silo to break down this over dependence and structure which brings with it siloization uh, the training function which you know typically has begun to emerge for the first time maybe even is fully formed by this point uh, becomes an echo chamber of treadmill. You know, the training is all about compliance. Well, you know, we need to put a torch to that and make the training all about creativity, risk-taking under a controlled environment, showing initiative, entrepreneurial mindset, and then bring whatever compliance element is needed in after that, not making it the be-all and end-all. Performance assessment is a really good uh, one of the things. First things I look at in an organization is, you know, show me how you do your performance assessment. In treadmill, it's typically again all about infringement, infraction, and compliance. What did you do wrong in the last month or quarter or year? And you know, what do we need to have you work at uh, to overcome your weaknesses and so forth? Instead of saying, you know, what did you do right and what can we do to bottle that and push it throughout the rest of the organization? And sure, if you did some things that we, you know, you feel and we feel you could improve on, let's find ways to help you do that. But let's not make that the be all and end all. So, you know, those are the sorts of areas that you've really got to work at. And by and large, it's all about the people. You know, in Whitewater, we're bringing in systems and processes for folks to work within. Uh, in Treadmill, we're re-attuning uh, our people to look at systems and processes as tools to help them move the needle rather than things in and of themselves. It's interesting. The, the, uh, I, I'm, I'm a very much systems guy, and uh, what's one of the things I love about this book is that it, in a way it rises and falls on systems. What's ironic is that it rises and seems like it rises and falls on the delicate balance uh, of those systems, which is uh, typically you don't get from your average consultant in selling uh, great systems and, and ways to do things. And I absolutely love that. It, and it keeps, again, the other thing I said is that in between that delicate balance of, of systems, you have predictable success as the goal and as the center of the model with uh, with various stages on either side, not as this target that you hit and once you hit it, everything's great. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a insightful and important point that you make uh, about the model, David. I, I, it's not there to sell any specific system, and I don't in any way prescribe that an organization must have this sort of systems or do this thing. It's all about whatever your systems are, whatever your culture is as an organization, how do your people work within it, and how do you make that work to build a successful organization? That's that's a really good point. Absolutely, and, and again, predictable success, that delicate balance is that goal. Uh, if you want to find out how to get hit predictable success, predictablesuccess.com, pick up the book, Predictable Success, it's in bookstores everywhere. I know that's uh, I know that's true because I see it every time I walk in. Uh, but Les, what are, you, what are you reading now? What am I reading now? I'm enjoying, <clears throat> excuse me, Tony Schwartz's new book, uh, The Way We're Working Isn't Working. I really loved his first book. I like uh, the, the more that I um, that, that I look at at business, which is my sphere. Uh, you know, not for any moment saying that that's the most important thing we should all look at, but it's what I work in. The more I look at business success either on the macro level for an organization or on the micro level for an individual, the more I become convinced that the two key things are pattern recognition, you know, short-circuiting the ability to see what's going on by having models that you know are eternal and repeat over and over again, not becoming slavishly 
uh, entrapped by those, but using them as a short circuit to see, ah, okay, that's, so what happens next is this. And then on the other hand, the use of ritual to uh, make your response as optimal as possible. And Tony's done some great work about, um, for example, the rituals that uh, world-class tennis players like Federer and Nadal have between points. And he shows uh, in a wonderful way how that 30 seconds or two minutes that each of them have between each point uh, is really at the key of their success. And, you know, I've begun to watch tennis in a completely new way as a result of that. And it's absolutely true. And we all uh, use rituals in a in a small or, or large way. And, I, and I'm trying to uh, integrate that into the to work of predictable success. So uh, reading that, I mostly like to read outside of um, business uh, I, because I, I find that the best sort of study is comparative study and stuff that I find elsewhere not within the business arena that, that you know, is acutely true, uh, then has a fresh imp- imp- uh, implication in business. So um, this might sound weird, but probably the most impactful business book that I've read this year so far is Keith Richards' uh, recently released biography, Life. Uh, it's a stunningly and surprisingly well-written book. Uh, really grabs you from the first page. He has a lot more to say about everything than I ever thought the man did. But just watching as... And it's not what he intends to do, but what in essence, in essence happens is he shows you how the Rolling Stones were built. Now, that's one successful business, and it's a business that's been in predictable success for 30 years now, and I just find it gripping from a business read's point of view. So uh, that would be another. I've come to a subtle realization of uh, bands and looking at, at musicians as uh, as a business or as an organization. It, uh, it's funny that you say with the Rolling Stones because... Uh, I was recently doing it with the band U2. I was looking at, I was talking with Michael Lee Stollard actually on the podcast, and he uses the examples of U2 as a culture. But then you look at it again, and it's, it's something, somebody, a group that's been in predictable success for uh, 25, 30 years. And say what you will about their most recent album, they've still been in uh, predictable success for a long time. Absolutely. And if you go to a concert of theirs, just as with the Stones, you'll see that whether it's your cup of tea or not, they do it incredibly well. And in both cases, and I knew a lot of the background of early YouTube because I was living in Ireland at the time, uh, being Irish, whenever they were you know, just about known in the Dublin scene and, and starting to gain a little traction. And one of the things that you see that's applied to them uh, is this concept that Malcolm Gladwell talked about in Outliers, but was really originally promulgated by a Nobel-winning uh, scientist called Herbert Simon. And... Um, what Simon said was that to achieve mastery in any particular area, you need to put in 10,000 hours of focused work. And that's one of the things that comes across in spades with, with Keith Richards, with, with Bono, with Edge, any of those guys, is that, again, irrespective of whether you like what they do, they are utterly masters of what they do. And the reason, the core reason for that is when they walk out there, they've got that 10,000 hours and 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 the case of somebody like Richards, you know, probably four times that by now, under their belt. So nothing's going to a nothing's going to take them by surprise, and b they're constantly looking for another little wrinkle, niche pocket to move in, to change something, and to make it different, to push it along. 
And uh, interestingly, uh, this may be way beyond the, um, the, the, the parameters of our, of our discussion today, but uh, I'm just watching right now, Bono and Edge have got a massive investment, $65 million put into a new Broadway show called, uh, based around the Spider-Man story that's been plagued by problems. And uh, uh, right now it has got, uh, I think, eight days left before opening, and they still have these massive technical glitches. And um, in an interview that I read today with Bono, he said, I wake up every day trying to make art that's fresh and new, and by uh, dot, 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 uh, this is it. And he's scared right now because he's doing something that he doesn't know as well as he knows how to get on stage and sing, but he's trying to achieve great art in doing it. And, you know, in business, that's, the, you know, that's what I turn up for every day. I, I, I want to go help people take their business to a level they've never been at before. And one of the things I've thankfully been able to do is bring my 10,000 hours to the patterns of growth. I've put them in the book to try to short-circuit dealing with those so we can get to a new edge, to a new level, to a new stage in, in, in uh, growing a business. And, you know, that's what turns me on. No, absolutely. And you can see the results of your 10,000 hours and probably much more than that because everything that's in the book jives with, you know, everything I know as, a, as an academic about organizational life cycles. It just, it just does it in a way that we at Leader Lab love because it's a whole lot easier to comprehend. You, you read the book, you have the picture, and you're good to go. Now, I, I noticed you said uh, a little bit about a new book, but overall, what's next for you? Well, they, they, the first book is one of a series of five, David, and um, I'm just starting to put pen to paper for the second one in terms of actually writing the final manuscript. As with Predictable Success, it's, um, it's, uh, it's what I've been teaching and working in for the last 10 years, so it's not that I have to you know, find the, what I'm going to write about. Uh, and uh, the second book is all about the management styles, the key management styles that underpin an organization at each of those seven stages, what's there, what's not there, what's needed, what's missing. And, and, and initially I'd intended that that all be in the first book, uh, but it was just too unwieldy. It was too much like a fire hose. It would have been too much for people to taken in, in one sitting so i pulled it all completely out of the first book uh it'll now it's called the synergist and it's a uh, about the management style uh that i essentially call a leader of leaders what, what's the management style that's needed to lead the leaders in a predictable success organization and that'll be out uh at the back end of next year uh followed by a, a workbook uh and then uh, two specific books one on using predictable success in teams. Uh, so how do you use it just within a small team as opposed to within an organization? And finally, uh, predictable success for managers. You know, if you manage an organization, but you, you don't ultimately have full control of it, you're not in the C-suite or you're not a founder owner, but you just, you know, you want to get in there and do a good job. Uh, how does predictable success work for you? So, uh, you know, I'm 54 and I, I pretty much reckon in terms of uh, whatever I have to contribute, <laughs> that series of books will see me through. So that is my main focus right now. And continuing to work with, you know, I'm a one-man band. I resolutely refuse to employ anybody anymore because I, you know, I've done all that. Uh, I, I keep two to three clients on any one time to sharpen the saw and keep me intellectually challenged and because I love doing what I do. So that will not change for the foreseeable future. Fantastic. And we'll be looking for the synergist on the horizon, but in the meantime, we'll be looking at uh, predictable success and 
you know, I, I'm going to make a suggestion to the Leader Lab listeners if you're interested in predictable success. Not only get the book, but go to predictablesuccess.com slash map and then click uh, right-click on the image and save it as your desktop background so that you'll remember the cycle and how to get to predictable success. Les, thank you so much for joining us in time to Leader Lab today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, David. <laughs>